0: Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, clinical lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This episode is part of our series called The Ethics Toolkit. When treating sick children and their families, clinicians are sometimes faced with challenging ethical situations. This series explores how bioethicists help clinicians address these challenges. Today we're continuing our series, The Ethics Toolkit, by considering child and family-centred care. Very lucky to have with us an absolute expert at the hospital, Professor Kathy Crock. kathy has been a physician who started working with children with cancer who are having blood tests, intravenous lines and lumbar punctures, and considering their needs through these procedures. This developed her interest in child and family-centred medical care. She's done a Churchill Fellowship in child and family-centred care and amongst other things is the founder of the Hush Foundation and the Gathering of Kindness. She's dedicated to building, nurturing and instilling a culture of kindness throughout the healthcare system. Kathy's also a professor at Deakin University and been recognised for her contribution in the field by being a member of the Order of Australia. Kathy, welcome to Essential Ethics.
1: Thanks, John. Nice to be here. I'm
0: also joined by an old friend of Essential Ethics, Professor Lynn Gillam, who's the academic director of the Royal Children's Hospital Bioethics Centre and professor at the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. To keep up with Cathy, she also has a member of the Order of Australia. So we are in distinguished company today. Welcome Lynn.
2: Thanks, John, and great to be with you too, Kathy.
0: Child and family centred care seems to be quite on quite in the forefront and people are thinking and talking about that a lot now. And and there is a history, I guess, because it's not that long ago really that children were brought to a hospital, separated from their parents, left to sit in the bed for the duration of their illness, maybe make friends with some staff and the kids next to them. And it was thought disrupting to their well-being for the parents to come and go and the kids would cry when the parents uh, left. And at least in paediatrics, we've moved on. And I suspect many of our listeners would think, well, you know, child and family-centred care, that's just normal. Cathy, do you think it is just normal? Are we there? Is that what we're doing as routine now? Or is there more to it than that?
1: I think, John, this is a journey and we're well along that journey, but there's still a lot more that we could do. And I think getting people to understand it a little bit more and feel more comfortable with it is going to make a big difference.
0: Kathy, uh, we could be at risk of just talking about something that feels good and is warm and fuzzy, but actually there's a lot more to it, I think. But Do you want to just tell us how you got involved and and, and part of your contribution to what is an important field in healthcare?
1: Well, it started back in nearly 25 years ago now. I had five young children at home and I was wanting some part-time work and I started this job at the children's running the bone marrow and lumbar puncture service. And it was pretty early on, I think from a mother's point of view, I started to think, What if some of the procedures and the things we were needing to do to these children were happening to my family? How would I feel? So I think personalising it like that changed my mindset. And I thought, well, I really don't know what it would be like sitting in the plastic chair as one of those parents or being one of those children going through cancer treatment or other treatment. So I thought, well, maybe I better ask them. And that was a little bit unusual at those times, but I sat down with a group of the families and I said, Tell me about your journey when you've got a sick child. It was such an eye opener to hear from the families some of the things that they experienced in the healthcare system that we as health professionals weren't even really aware of. And I think it's getting that different perspective that can be really helpful sort of equalising people, I think, sitting down human to human and talking about what this experience is like and what are the parts that are really difficult and that we could help improve if we knew a bit more about it. So I'll give you some examples. The families talked to me about waiting time, that they would spend a lot of time waiting for various things to happen. Now, they were very respectful of us as health professionals being really busy, but they said could you respect us as well, respect our time and give us more information about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. They talked also a lot about patient safety that they knew about or had noticed, but didn't feel they had a voice in the system to tell anyone. And they didn't know that if they were to tell us that they were worried about something, then something could be done to make the care safer or better for their child. So it was quite a fascinating thing for me. And the more I learned from the families, the more excited I got about how we could do this better by bringing them in as equal partners in what was going on. And now, in fact, every family I meet, that's one of the conversations, upskill them and to let them know that their part in the system is so important and so critical, and that we will listen to what they've got to say. And we'll work with that and do the best we possibly can for their child.
0: Cathy, did you feel nervous, you know, 25 years ago, you know, breaking with nearly 3,000 years of medical tradition and that the, uh, that healthcare was about the doctors and uh, the nurses and the systems rather than the people for whom it was delivered to? At
1: first, I guess I might have been a little bit naive. I thought everybody would be as excited as me to hear from the families. There was a fair bit of backlash in those days, in fact, people saying, you're stirring up the families, you're making them complain. They were not complaining, John, it was absolutely amazing. They had constructive, amazing feedback from sort of behind the scenes.
0: I mean, my comment's ironic, isn't it? Because uh, clearly healthcare is about the people receiving it, not about the people uh, delivering it. But really, that's a shake up to a very traditional based system that you've described. I mean, one of the things about child and family-centered care, of course, is it's not actually got a strict definition, but I think we all have an idea of it when we see it. But it does take into account concepts that you've described of partnership, collaboration, family as experts, and, and that's perhaps not just expert in their own family, but actually experts in their experience of the hospital system.
1: Yes, they have a unique experience of the hospital system and I think any of us who end up on the other side, end up as a patient, will start to understand that. I've had some recent healthcare experiences where you're brought into hospital at 7 o'clock in the morning and you put in the white gown that doesn't do up at the back and they put in a drip and they balance you on this metal trolley that's too narrow And then virtually nobody speaks to you again until half past 11, except for potentially a nurse who picks up the chart and goes, oh, you're not mine, and then puts it down again.
0: Your nominated helper for the day has been left outside Outside. uh, because it doesn't suit the system for them to actually come in and, and be with you.
1: Yes. That's why getting the perspective from the people who are sitting on the trolley or sitting in the bed or sitting next to the bed is so valuable this is not as you were saying before just about making people feel a little bit better this is integral to patient safety because what the families know we need to know as well and often they're too afraid to tell us
0: there is some literature and data supporting that beyond patient safety there are you know better outcomes such as a shorter length of stay more appropriate use of resources, and I know that's in a particular when discussions get to some end-of-life discussions and uh, intensive care time. So, you know, there, there really is a lot to this, but we really, you know, here on Essential Ethics, we want to understand some of the ethical frameworks and backgrounds that underpin family-centred care. And, and then one of my questions to you is, is child and family-centred care, I mean, is that a, a tool that's, that's in our toolkit as clinical ethicists?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, John. And the way I'm thinking about family and uh, patient and family in student care, particularly listening to, to Kathy talk now, is that that idea or philosophy, you might think of it as really trying to put into practice those really abstract ideas that we have in ethics about, for example, the principle of beneficence, that the responsibility of healthcare providers is to benefit patients. Sounds really simple. It's actually really hard to do in practice. And a lot of what Cathy is talking about is getting down to the nitty gritty of really trying seriously to do that in practice. And in particular, in relation to benefit, in ethics, we talk a lot about the idea that a person's well-being is partly an objective matter. And doctors looking on from the outside can tell if I'm in pain and I've got a broken leg, then there's obvious objective things that are reducing my well-being. But wellbeing is also a subjective thing. It's about how I feel. Uh, and Both of those are really important. But to understand how I feel, a doctor needs to talk to me and find out from me or a nurse needs to talk to me. And in a busy healthcare system, it, I think it is quite easy to talk about the idea of wellbeing without really focusing on that subjective element of it. The philosophy of patient and family-centred care, I think, really directs our attention at how to understand the principle of beneficence, what it really means to act in a patient's interests or to promote their well-being. I'd be interested to hear from Kathy about the extent to which uh, the family is a source of well-being for the child, and so the, the parents and the family are really important Perhaps more for a child than for an adult patient, or maybe not. Be interested to hear what you think about that, Kathy. Along the same lines, we talk in uh, ethics about the concept of autonomy and respect for autonomy. In relation to children, we think about the child as a person who has a developing capacity for autonomy, and we're always concerned about giving space for that to grow allowing children to ask questions to give them information so they understand again this idea of patient and family centered care is really a way of thinking about what does that really mean in practice and if we really followed through with that what would healthcare look like
0: those are fantastic insights and so you know we've already heard uh, you know a lot of the the ethics principles coming out cathy uh, initially was focusing a lot on safety which is about non maleficence And when I listen to you talk about beneficence, it's really taking, it's using child and family-centred care to go beyond just technically correct, right child, right operation, wound sign up properly, no infections, discharge fairly quickly. It's saying, well, that's a good element to do. Those are good things to do clinically. But child and family-centred care asks us to go a bit further than that, doesn't it, Cathy? It does for sure.
1: And I think... What Lynne was saying at the beginning about checking in, that's the really important part. If you ask patients and families what really mattered to them during a hospital experience, they will assume that that technical stuff we've got covered and that we've got the medical stuff covered. But it's when you've actually checked in with them about the other things that matter and put the kindness and the care around them, those are the things that they'll remember and talk about and that's so
0: important. Lynn, when you you, you you talked about autonomy and you talked about, in fact, the definition is, is respect for autonomy, really, what we what we think about. And of course, for a lot of people, that's you know, consent for a procedure and autonomy mm. sort of stops there. And I think where child and family centre comes in so nicely is to take us deeper into autonomy and respect and in children's healthcare, we we think much more about respect for persons, which makes us think about the child as a person.
2: Yes, and in thinking about the child as a person, that's not limited to thinking about whether the child is or is not a decision maker and what information they need to be given. It's taking them seriously as a person in themselves, I guess with a whole inner life and a curiosity about the outside world and thinking about how the outside world has an an impact on their in life, So it is literally seeing them as a person rather than, I guess, an object or a living being that has no consciousness. And Kathy, I'm wondering whether that's critical to your understanding of patient and family-centred care.
1: Yes, I think, Lynn it is critical. And once again, it's the checking in and it's getting to know that child for who they are and where they're at at the time and acknowledging that that might change with time but that where you're at at the moment, you need to come to an understanding of that person so that you can work with them in a way that's going to have the best impact on them.
0: Mm. Kathy, there's another element to to child and family-centred care, though, and looking at some of the work from the Institute for for Patient and Family-Centred Care. I'll just read a list of some of the, the features because it takes us, beyond just the child and the family's uh, sort of current experience, if you like. It says families are experts in what helps and hurts them. So we've talked a little bit about that, them sort of beneficence, maleficence in the care. Families are indispensable partners for policy making and helping professionals and advocates, which I think takes families into a deeper role in the healthcare system. Families are not dependent clients, but equals and citizens. And I think that's sort of elevating them back from the patient, back from the person in the white gown with their bottom showing. Yeah. I'm not imagining too much, Cathy. Family-centred care promotes a face-to-face and community-based system. So again, for policy development, and it promotes democratisation and, and gender equity. So these principles of, of taking the experience perhaps in the families and actually going deeper into to shape the healthcare system around the end users, Do you, do you agree with that Concept and have you got some examples of where we might have got that right and and be doing that?
1: So, yes, I totally agree. And part of my Churchill Fellowship trip was working with the Institute for Patient and Family Centered Care in the US. Um, So, actually, looking in depth at some of those principles. One of them that's really interesting is the policy making and helping us professionals rework the system in various ways. I can give you a small example from the early. Family Council that we had at the Royal Children's that started maybe 15 years ago now. how many CEOs or hospital executives would know that the rubbish bins in wards are emptied after midnight? It was fascinating to sit at a table with parents who said, "We've had a you know, terrible day, we've just got our child off to sleep and bang crash wallop somebody comes in and empties the rubbish bins. So some of these behind the scene things are just amazing and to think that we are very, you know, confident in our health system and think it's all working very well, but there are a lot of things that the families know and can help us to
0: improve. So that's sort of some thoughtlessness, isn't it, really, in a, in a sort of a behemoth system that operates for whatever reasons but someone hasn't actually quite thought it through and no one's had the courage or insight to raise that?
1: So that is a small example, but there are myriads of those that are going on every day. System things where patients and families fall through the cracks and when, in fact, they are the constant in a whole journey and they pass through so many different departments, they can give us insights into which departments function well together as teams, which departments are not functioning where balls get dropped along the way. And bringing them into those conversations is actually a very exciting thing because they can cut through a lot of the bureaucracy. They don't see any of that and they don't have to consider that, but they can come forward with all these amazing information that can help us with policy and systems.
0: Lynn, do you think in an ethical construct that brings us to justice, which I think we often leave out a little bit in terms of our discussions in bioethics, but is is, is this sort of policy making, this investment of families with experience in using it and then sort of changing the system or developing the system so it's good for everyone and fairer? Is that that what we're talking about, Justice?
2: Yeah, partly, although I'm still thinking it's really back with beneficence in many ways. It just seems to me a complete ethical no-brainer that you wouldn't empty rubbish bins when kids are getting off to sleep Um, because it's clearly (laughs) damaging to everybody and I can't imagine anyone saying oh well we have to empty rubbish bins at midnight so we can't change Uh, and what Kathy's pointing out is just it takes the parents to tell you because maybe you haven't no one else has noticed. So in that sense it's still back on taking that holistic view of well-being and just thinking about how it's affected by things look really small. The other thing I was thinking though John is some changes to systems are not easy to make and require resources. It's pretty easy to change the cleaner shift so that they empty the rubbish bins at a different time. But there, I would imagine, Cathy, there are lots of things in the way healthcare system operates which would be better for families if, for example, they didn't have to wait so long or they didn't have to go between so many places. But then that becomes a matter of the resources that are available to the system the more patient and family-centred you are in your practices, I'm interested to hear what you think, Cathy, that can take up more staff time. And we might be thinking, all right, how do we manage to do that fairly with the resources we've got available so that we do the best we can to meet equal needs equally?
1: I think we could use that as an excuse to not change things, and we have to be really careful about that because it's often easier to say, no, it's working fine as it is. In actual fact, the families, I think, can help us to streamline a lot of things and can certainly help us to save money overall across the health system. The more we bring them in and the more we're all at the table together, throwing in the different ideas, the more we'll get an equal playing field and we will save money. So I think it's actually the opposite because the families are seeing duplication along the way. They're seeing waste along the way, and they could actually, if they knew they had a voice, could say to us, why do I need to have this scan again, because I've already had one of those, or why do I need to go to this department, because the other department had already dealt with that.
2: So that's a picture of patient and family-centred care actually freeing up resources, if we took it seriously and did it well.
1: Yes, for sure. I wondered if I could get on to another slightly prickly area Something else that came out very strongly when I was talking closely with families was that families are really aware, as I said before, of how departments might be working together or not, but also of individual staff interactions and things that are going on behind the scenes. We might think that they're not listening, but they're actually listening and watching everything that's going on, and they can tell you which nurse is bullying which other nurse. They can tell you which doctor is rude to his junior staff. And what those families will say is that makes us feel less safe. We think that you do not have your eye on our child because you're too busy doing your behind-the-scenes bickering about who's doing which rosters or who's not kind to somebody else it actually got me very interested in the whole staff wellbeing and how staff treat each other piece because I got to learn how concerned the families were about us and our interactions. And it's led me into this work around what is a kind health system and how can we have a system that is kind to all the staff so they're kind to each other so they actually can be more kind and patient-centred.
0: You don't think kindness is weakness, uh, Kathy?
1: Kindness is definitely not weakness. It takes courage to be kind, particularly in a system that is pretty pressured and can be unkind to you. To be able to step back and say, no, my choice in this interaction is to be kind to my colleague, be kind to the patients and families, even if they might be doing things that are getting right up my nose.
0: I mean that's a lot of emotional intelligence isn't it that that's needed in a, in a system that is pretty tough on the employees but we have to rise above that and be kind to each other.
1: Yes and I over the years what I've come to find is that the whole child and family centered care or patient centered care falls over. We haven't got the capacity to do it John if we're not being treated with kindness by our organisation or by our colleagues. And then someone says to you, now will you be patient-centred as well? And you go, whoa, hang on, I'm doing the best I can just to do my work and you want me to go above and beyond. So I think we've got to take a step back and start to look after ourselves and each other. And then I think that child and family-centred care flows on from that.
0: It's interesting, Cathy, because that wasn't, where I thought you were going to go when, when beforehand we said, let's let's talk about staff. So, you know, of course, what you've said is is right. But I think that we're actually not bad, at least I think we're not bad at Royal Children's in terms of sort of multidisciplinary care and, and, and often working together in meetings to try and, and get good outcomes. But that's, again, a, a health provider's sort of centric view, but I, I get the sense that when we as a staff member, we do get child and family-centred care right. Our satisfaction is much better. So I sense that you're further along in the journey than, than lots of uh, people or, or, or lots of us, and obviously it's individuals as well as a whole healthcare system. And so I sort of sense from your passion and enthusiasm that that's a space that makes you feel really good about the healthcare you deliver and you build on that. Is is that what you're also thinking about staff?
1: Yes, definitely. It makes for a much more satisfactory and satisfying and joyful workplace if you're feeling supported and cared for by your colleagues and you're also feeling that the care you're providing is the care that those patients and families are really appreciating. The gratitude that you get back just makes it worth coming to work every day. It's fantastic.
0: I mean, it has both intrinsic, but also instrumental value, doesn't it? Uh, Lynn, you were keen to, you're bobbing up and down to jump in here.
2: <laughs> I am indeed, and you're doing a very good job to see it on audio, John. I'm impressed. What I'm thinking about as you and Kathy are talking is the idea that we typically think of ethics as about whether you're making an ethically appropriate decision or not. So it's about decisions and then about actions, what you do. This discussion is really about what sort of person you are, how you are being to your colleagues, how you're being uh, with patients and families. And that links up with virtue ethics, which is a field of ethics which focuses not so much on decision making, but more about your personal characteristics and qualities and the importance of developing and cultivating those in a way that's quite, I guess, purposeful so not accidental I was thinking about the idea of being kind so you might think well some people are kind some people are not it's just how you are but I, I think Cathy's talking about sort of deliberately being kind you talked Kathy, about the of making a choice to be kind so that's a, in some sense it's a decision you make but it's a decision then about how to be it's not about specific actions to perform as an understanding of patient and family centered care and its relationship with ethics it directs us to ethical importance of personal qualities um, and that they can in some to at least to some degree be deliberately chosen and i guess the ethical importance of relationships how good relationships actually promote well-being
1: yes those small human to human connections are actually the key to this and a little while ago, when we were talking about the costs of the system, etc., I think some of these connections can be made so quickly. You can make it in one minute and trust with a family or with a child or with the parents so quickly, and you suddenly have leapfrogged onto a different stage of relationship that can cut through some of the, the noise and you get to where you need to be really quickly. There are times when I've sat down with a family and you just know that you've made that connection and the next steps will be so much easier for all of
2: you. So the next steps can be quite hard, can't they, Cathy, in terms of what we're asking patients and families to cope with?
1: Yeah, the families that I'll be talking to, they've just had a devastating diagnosis made and they're not sure what's going to happen in the future and they're really scared and they may not be acting at their best but once you've made that connection where the trust is built your next conversations are just way better and way easier than they
2: might have been. So in the end that sets you up to deliver as good care as medical care as you possibly can for the child as well as having those good relationships?
1: Yes for sure. Another thing maybe we could talk about is families who do get aggressive or really upset and the times that you can de-escalate that very quickly just by getting that trust going. And it can be a small act of kindness. I can remember seeing one uh, dad who was really upset and angry and they would called security on him several times. When he came to see our team, the team treated him the same way we've treated all the families with kindness and respect and checking in with him how he liked his child to be positioned. They had some quite difficult neurological condition. How did they like him to be positioned? How did they like the breathing to be done? Would they like to be standing next to him while we were doing the procedure? And afterwards, the parents were so overjoyed at how they'd been treated. And we thought, well, in actual fact, what we did was we built trust in that first three or four minutes. That dad was an expert in his son's care and he knew things about that positioning, etc. It was a small thing to treat him with the respect of what that expertise was. And we've been on great terms ever since. It's been fantastic.
0: So again, there's that, that real there instrumental value, if that's what you're interested in, in terms of you know, child and family-centered care and, and respect for the family as, as experts. And Lynn, it's lovely to hear virtue ethics getting a run rather than just principles. It must have been your inner Aristotle that was bobbing up and down and, and not uh, and not you. Kathy, you know, one of the terms I used at the beginning was sort of warm and fuzzy, and uh, we, I think we've discussed why the child and family-centred care is beyond that, but it does raise a potential problem if staff are too close, perhaps, to the patient or family, or is that, is that possible? Can we cross some sort of boundary, uh, or in fact, is it the opposite, that we're too afraid to even get near the boundary that it inhibits good child and family-centred care?
1: I would say, John, that we're pushing towards the, that further boundary, and that at times makes me sad. And I'm not sure if it's a real boundary or whether we are just so afraid because of the system that we're in that we might get into trouble for overstepping some mark.
0: I mean, it's been so strong in in, in medical professionalism, which I guess, you know, going back a while, that was really what people were taught in medical ethics, was really just medical professionalism. Uh, But do you think you can be close and respectful and fun and kind without the patient necessarily becoming your bestie?
1: Absolutely. I think you can. And of course, you need to have some level of caution. I reckon it's better to trust in the first place that you can make some good decisions on the boundaries and it will be safe for both parties and that that's fine. And step away from this fear culture that we have that this is going to be bad and we're going to get into trouble because I think it inhibits people from being as kind as they might be able to be or from doing patient-centred care.
0: Lynn, do you have any comments about that and sort of professional boundaries I and mean, sort of prof- professionalism and ethics, they sort of overlap but they're not the same thing?
2: So professional ex- uh, boundaries is a really good example of what I always want to ask in terms of any healthcare practice is, so why does this matter? What's the ethical concern? The idea that a healthcare professional should maintain professional boundaries and not get too close to patients, it is a very pervasive idea. My question is, what's the problem if those boundaries are crossed? What actually is the ethical concern? Uh, which is not to suggest that I don't think there could be any problems, but it, it is a challenge to say that we need to be able to identify what those are and think about whether our concerns about them are realistic, to think about, as Kathy was suggesting, ways in which you can have a genuine, open, kind relationship without getting into those problem areas. But if we just have a blanket, don't get too close to families, that's really blunt and doesn't allow for that nuanced thinking about what's really appropriate and what's not. So for professionalism, I always want to go one step and say, yes, that's a professional idea, but ethically, why does it matter? Let's think more about it. Protecting staff matters, doesn't it? Because mm. staff are people too. And so if professional boundaries are there to, partly to protect staff, I think that's ethically okay, but we need to not overplay that. And prob- then I would also ask, do staff suffer harm or detriment in some way from adhering to professional boundaries too strictly? Like maybe it works both ways. If if a, a more genuine relationship is better for families is it actually also better for staff not so it's maybe it's more protective to be a bit more open
1: i love your virtue ethics coming in i think we need to explore that more
2: yeah it's really useful because it talks about virtues and then the idea is you can have not enough the right amount or too much so it does accommodate boundaries
0: Yeah. Because that's what virtues are, don't they? Because, you know, I mean, that's the Aristotelian thing between sort of bravery and stupidity. That's
2: right, yeah. So courage is a virtue and you can clearly have too little of it. But if you have too much, that's just foolhardiness and you're the one who rushes off into battle and gets killed and doesn't help anybody. Yes. Uh, So it really lends itself to that idea. And it also, interestingly, the idea of the virtues is that you uh, cultivate them and you learn as you go. So you're not expected when you're a young person yes. to have it all in place.
1: Yeah.
2: So you, you practice and get better as you go. Mm-hmm. So I think it really fits the healthcare setting really well.
0: I love there that. is this, this sense of mindfulness, isn't it, too, about what we talked about bringing these ideas that sort of sit somewhere backwards, getting into the front of front of mind yeah. and then being able to see what it is you're doing and develop it. I mean, okay. I hope in a sense that's what the toolkit is doing. Mm. It's giving people the tools to bring to their clinical work. And as Cathy has you so eloquently said, then the things expand and open up for you.
2: Yes. Mm. But Kathy, I was really struck by your um, choice of words about uh, choosing to be kind. And I took it, you meant it very kind of deliberately that, you could choose not to or you could choose to and your job is choose to.
1: Yes, and almost that if people are just at the awareness stage, so if we can make them aware that they yep. have a choice and you're having an interaction with someone and instead of just launching into it, you can go, oh, how am I going to take this?
2: Yep, which you can do in 10 seconds as your
1: Yes, Exactly. And I think sometimes people are a bit reactive and don't have that personal reflection pause to go, oh, I could snap back at this or I could think what's going on for that person that I'm about to interact with.
2: And that feedback from families about noticing when staff are bullying each other or.
1: It's actually quite scary when I heard that. Yeah, yeah. But you know it if you're sitting in a restaurant and you know they're fighting behind things. You're wondering, is your coffee going to be okay or somebody spat in it? Yes, exactly, exactly. But for families, I did some research for Royal Hobart Hospital at one stage and it was about the redesigning of their outpatients. And I sat and I just had to interview people sitting in the waiting room to see what the families thought about the waiting room. Well, they had some amazing things. First of all, all the chairs were facing the reception staff instead of looking out on the harbour. Second of all, there was a lady who said, I heard the staff calling me the cat lady. Now, Mm. she was just devastated by that. And what the staff at the counter was saying was, oh, there's the cat lady. Now, she had two cats. She told me they both had diabetes. And she was really worried because she'd give them their insulin and their food before she went to her appointment at the hospital.
2: Yeah. And if yeah.
1: that took too long, her yeah. cat might have a hypo before she got home. Yeah. And they were laughing about her. We would all be in her situation sitting there and listening.
0: Um, I had an experience of bringing a friend. He's now a veterinary ophthalmologist, but he came to the neonatal unit uh, when, where I was training for a day, just to see, you know, just to see what we got up to. And that was in a time when it was fairly easy to arrange those things. And he said, "I can't. You must be exhausted. I can't believe you know what you've been through today." I'm thinking, well, you know, not too many people tried to die. A couple of intubations cool. and a couple of chest drains. He said, "No, just the way you had to interact with the staff to keep things moving along all day was just mm-hmm. exhausting to watch." Mm-hmm. And I thought, ah. That's interesting. I hadn't even I just background noise to me. I think Lynn, that brings us to a you know brings us to an important point, which is uh, you know clinician burnout. So I think we've you know we've circled around some things and and and, and talked about the the value of patient and family centred care you know for the family and then for the clinician, but does it go to the next level, where there's a lot of discussion, a lot of concern about uh, physicians burning out.
1: I think that you're absolutely right, John, that burnout is being talked about a lot and I would feel one of the antidotes to that is to be able to have really genuine, uh, close and kind relationships with the patients and families. As I said before, the gratitude that comes back from a situation like that, it's definitely a two-way street. It makes you feel so joyful in your work when you know that you're doing the right thing for that patient and family, whatever the outcome, because regardless of the outcome, the families can feel that you really care about their child and about them and you're working hard to do your best.
0: Kathy, one of the things that we've talked uh, quite a bit about then is, is engagement of the, of the family and, and the child. But I think that... Decision-making with children, too, is is probably facilitated by this model, and we're going to have a a series after the ethics toolkit called Deciding with Children, but do you think that child and family-centred care needs a Guernsey on that podcast series, because perhaps we're facilitating the the child as an emerging decision-maker?
1: Yes, definitely, and maybe you need to have a young person on that podcast with you.
0: I'm not young enough?
1: No, you look pretty young to me. But I was thinking someone more like twelve year old, maybe.
0: Uh, I, I, there isn't in a twelve year old. I'm a paediatrician uh, who still tells poo jokes. So, but. Um...
1: I'll tell you about one of the most successful videos that we did that Rob Grant actually helped us with. Um, was called Meet the Experts, and we were trying to do parent and child information about what to expect when you came for a bone marrow or a lumbar puncture procedure. And we, first of all, you know, asked staff, we wrote the script and we decided what we were going to do. And then I showed it to one of the families and they said, oh, it's terribly boring. And we basically scrapped our plan and we then sat down and had a young boy who's about nine or 10 at the time and his mum and they actually wrote the script and then we performed performed this video using the children who are actually doing the journey it was so genuine the staff who were involved in those meetings where we were planning the video and working with this young boy said these were the best meetings we've ever been to in our hospital experience because we're so connected to the purpose of what we're here for which is hearing it from the voice of the child so at that podcast you've got to have a young
0: person with you. A a younger person. So uh, absolutely. Lynn, we're going to have to wind up in a moment, but I wanted to to throw you a curveball here because we're sort of considering that the child and the family are the same thing and that their interests are basically the same. But, you know, when I, I look at the literature, and admittedly a lot of it's from from adult literature, it's, it talks about family-centered care, and I think that's possibly how it started, and, and then sort of patient and family-centered care, or if you're a pediatrician, it's child and, and family-centered care. But I guess sometimes I get concerned that maybe the child sometimes loses out to the family's interest, and that potentially is a weakness you know, if we just call it family-centred care, and while I've been very specific or tried to be through the podcast of calling it child and family-centred care, do you want to make a comment about that?
2: Yeah, look, I think that is a major concern. And when I think about child and family-centred care, I see the side that we've been talking about with Cathy, but I also see that concern about the child getting lost in the parents' wishes, the parents' worries. And I find myself and I hear many others Slip to talking about the family, the family want this, for example, or this is best for the family, without recognising that although the child within that family, they are an individual and their interests, what's best for them, is not necessarily always what their parents think it is or it might be what's going to work best for the child is different from what would work best for the family as a whole. And we have to bear that in mind. We, we need to keep focus on that question who ultimately is the focus of our greatest ethical obligation, and I take that to be the child. So we need to be open to the possibility that the family is not promoting the child's well-being, and we need to be ready to recognise that and step in. So that might be really pointy end with child protection, or it might be much further back in, in not simply accepting straight up what parents say they want for their child, but helping them to rethink that and, and focus their attention back on their child. I see Kathy nodding.
0: I see you nodding too. I think you must have a response, Kathy.
1: Well, I'm thinking that what Lynn's talking about is a really strong partnership so that you're in a relationship with that whole family where you can reframe it and you can get them to see the team's perspective about what's going to be best for that child.
0: Well, this has been a, a really remarkable discussion, and as typical for these, it, it goes to all sorts of wonderful places that I didn't know we were actually going to go. Um, Lynn, you know, we started wondering whether child and family-centred care should be in the ethics toolkit. I, I think that what we talked about today really justifies its position as a tool that clinical ethicists can use. Do you Do you agree with that?
2: Yes, and I'm struggling for an appropriate tool analogy, John, but somehow... Child and family centred care gets you from the abstract to the real. Maybe that's exactly what a tool does. I'm going to have to think about that. But yeah, definitely belongs in there.
0: I think maybe a jigsaw that we're sort of cutting out the healthcare system to suit the families, or creating. we'll have to develop that. Uh, that yeah, work metaphor. on that one, John. So, well, then, firstly, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Ethics this morning. A pleasure as always. And uh, Cathy, thank you so much for sharing with us uh, your insights into child and family-centred care.
1: This has been really fun, thank you. And I'm so glad we're in the toolkit.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded in the Creative Services Studio at the Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced in conjunction with Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.